Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, welcome and thank you for tuning in for episode 6 of the Dietitian's Dilemma series on HPO. For this episode, Michelle and I were joined by Dr. Shivani Sethi Delai. Dr. Sethi is a Stanford and Duke trained double board certified physician in obesity medicine and psychiatry. She's the founding director of Stanford University's Metabolic Psychiatry Program and Silicon Valley Metabolic Psychiatry a new center in the San Francisco Bay Area focused on optimizing brain health by integrating low-carb nutrition, comprehensive psychiatric care, and treatment of obesity with associated metabolic disease. She is a clinical assistant professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, where she leads a number of clinical trials investigating the important relationship between nutrition, metabolic dysfunction, inflammation, and mental health, She is the author of multiple peer-reviewed publications, a recipient of numerous professional awards from organizations, and widely featured speaker and thought leader. She holds an MD from Duke University, a master's degree from John Hopkins University, and completed residency at Stanford University. Just a reminder, Dr. Sethi is not providing individual medical advice, but discussing her preliminary research in the area of eating disorders and low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets. Please do speak with your doctor about the risks and benefits of this approach for you individually. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting the show. If you wish to support monetarily, you can find links to my Patreon page or PayPal link on my website, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, or in the links in the show notes. If you wish to support the show non-monetarily, liking, sharing, and subscribing to this show on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube goes a very long way. Finally, a special thanks to S-Fuels for sponsoring this episode along with the Dietitian's Dilemma series. Please consider checking out their low-carbohydrate products at sfuelsgolonger.com. Links and discount code can be found in the show notes. How's it going, both of you? going good, Zach. I'm excited. I'm so excited to have uh, Dr. Sethi on with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we, we've had a lot of fun with this series. I think we, we've, we've based it around Michelle's book and kind of, uh, I guess, maybe more loosely attached each episode to a specific chapter. But we've tried to do some, some kind of deep dives into some of the stuff with that and put a highlight on just like where nutrition and specifically low carbohydrate nutrition, kind of what role that kind of can play for folks, you know, whether their goals are, you know, just health and well-being, performance, or uh, they're having specific issues that have been uh, addressed with their nutritional approach and things like that. So it's been kind of a fun, informative uh, way to kind of take a dive into to, to Michelle's book. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the, one of the chapters of my book specifically is on eating disorders. And, you know, I've talked you know, on previous podcasts and on, you know, previous podcasts with you, Zach, about like my history of having a really serious eating disorder when I was much younger and being hospitalized with anorexia. And, you know, it's a really difficult topic to talk about. I'm really encouraged to hear more people, you know, men and women talking about all different kinds of eating disorders from you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and having worked as a dietitian in the hospital, you know, I was so discouraged um, with our current nutrition recommendations. Like they haven't changed at all um, since, you know, I was hospitalized and that was over 25 years ago. So I am so excited to have Dr. Sethia on and talk about her case studies and her research and yeah, just kind of dive into um, nutrition for eating disorders. Cause it's just, it's such a, it can be a very triggering topic. You know, we're certainly not trying to make anybody triggered or angry or frustrated, but, you know, I kind of want to question is this all foods can fit foods in moderation, um, working for people with eating disorders. And I know Dr. Seth, you specifically, uh, did the case studies with binge eating disorder, but yeah, maybe before we dive in for people who aren't familiar with you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Sethi, can you kind of give a little bit about like your background and, you know, the, your research and just what you're up to? Sure, of course. Uh, so I'm a clinical assistant professor at Stanford, I'm a physician and a researcher. I'm board certified in psychiatry and obesity medicine. I started and direct a clinical program, which I termed metabolic psychiatry uh, at Stanford to appropriately describe our study of the relationship between mental health and metabolic disease and how we gradually come to understand that inflammation, oxidative stress, and insulin resistance may represent important root causes of many chronic brain illnesses like psychiatric illness, um, bipolar illness, schizophrenia, and, and eating disorders. And so we really look at how treatment of the metabolic dysfunction can affect psychiatric symptoms. Um, but I guess before we go into all the detail, I just wanted to, Michelle, first um, and Zach as well, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I just have to first say that I was able to read some of your book, uh, Michelle, and you really do a wonderful job describing the pain and the suffering that one experiences when having a serious eating disorder like anorexia, um, you know, constantly analyzing, judging every morsel of food that you put in your mouth is really no way to live. Um, it's very energy draining and, and treatment is really critical. So I want to just thank you for sharing your story. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes courage and even to bring out these ideas and topics out also, I think takes a lot of courage as well. So it's certainly worth discussing and I echo many sentiments that you've expressed in the book. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's a, it's just a really interesting topic too, because I think when you, especially when we start to look into the world of eating disorders and things like that, I see like, uh, you know, as someone who's obviously not a professional or someone who hasn't, hasn't had a, a history like Michelle can directly relate. Uh, one thing that I see pop up is you try to create this scenario where you remove this, like this fear of food from somebody who may have otherwise been kind of afraid to eat certain things or eliminated certain things, but on the same side of things. And I, I can appreciate this is likely an individual kind of approach when you get down to the, you know, the specifics of it, but also if you have a scenario where someone's already terrified of, of eating food for whatever reason, and now all of a sudden you're trying to convince them that 
everything is open, everything in moderation, so to speak, that could almost be like, in my opinion, possibly like information overload. And then it's like, well, where do they start or where do they even begin to kind of tackle the problem at hand when there's kind of that many options on the table, so to speak? Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a difficult and tricky uh, situation when, when you're, especially in those with folks with anorexia, I think oftentimes many people, even some healthcare providers may not realize the very severe mortality rates uh, in anorexia. And in fact, it has the greatest mortality uh, rates of all mental health conditions. And with COVID, the eating disorder cases have worsened. Um, in fact, there was a new study that was published in the International Journal of Eating Disorders. And it showed us that there was an increase in restrictive behaviors and binge episodes and urges to binge. Um, you know, and we think that the patterns of eating and the routine has changed during COVID, the lack of structure, the feeling of uncertainty around mealtimes, and really anxiety about the pandemic also that that's contributed to that increase. So we have to be really careful with, with how we approach um, talking about foods in moderation, um, especially given what kind of state that they are in. Um, and I can, I can talk more about that because certainly the dogma has been that all foods can fit. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to express my opinion about that, um, especially. Do it. Don't hold back. What's your opinion? <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can continue or if you wanted to dive in um, or ask me a question in between, please feel free. <laughs> I, can, I can talk for a long time. So, um, but, yeah. but yes, typically, you know, an eating disorder professional will recommend that all foods fit and not to calorie restrict, to eat several times per day to prevent the binge perch cycle of eating and restore weight. But I think at the most basic level, people have good intentions to help others. And the message to eat all foods is there with the intention basically to prevent mortality, especially when one is dangerously underweight or malnourished, like in anorexia. But we aggressively intervene to prevent death. The eating disorder world uh, typically does not intervene just as aggressively on the other side of the spectrum, say if, if someone has um, a high BMI of say 45, has diabetes and an eating disorder, um, the prevention of mortality there is, is not the same. So in my opinion, I believe what's missing in the message is that all foods are, are not equal and nourishing your brain with the right quality foods is important for optimizing brain health and function and even structure of the brain. So the research shows us now that trans fat, highly ultra processed foods and sugar is not good for the brain. And in fact, changes our brain chemistry and even the structure of the brain. So if you have metabolic dysfunction or if you have insulin resistance, this becomes even more important. And some foods we know actually cause shifts in hormone levels um, and they affect blood sugar stability and that directly affects the brain receptors and, and dopamine levels as well. So I do feel that when I'm seeing patients, I, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't educate them or, or address those underlying metabolic issues that they're also concerned about. And uh, most patients also want that addressed. They, they want to talk about their weight. They want to talk about their metabolic issues and their eating disorder. For example, teaching one to not be afraid of fat is a good thing. And I had a patient with infertility issues with anorexia who is vegan, was an athlete, 
and wasn't able to have regular menstruation. She thought she was doing well because she ate ice cream and a donut to help her kind of get into the normal weight range or category uh, because that's what the advice was given to her that she needed to gain weight, um, but her period still didn't return. So once I convinced her to start eating fat and in particular animal fat regularly, her periods did return and she actually thought differently about food. So I do think food is medicine. It's not a new concept, but it's, it's a very powerful concept and it can be a very powerful intervention. So I'm not saying that changing food is the answer to everything, but that it really should be part of the treatment equation and psychosocial factors addressing the need for control and therapy and treatment are also of course critical. Um, so I yeah, would Dr. Dr. Sethi, I'd like, um, I was thinking about this the other day because I do think context is very important, you know, and I, when I first, after I first released the book, I had someone reach out to me who was severely underweight, but was just really afraid of carbohydrates or afraid because they wanted to follow a low carbohydrate diet. And, you know, I always come back to like, what are, what are the goals of a person? So obviously the goal of a person who's severely underweight is very different than potentially the goal of somebody, like you said, who's obese. And I thought about like, you know, in the, um, you know, when I was working in acute care, like if we had somebody that coming in on like a diabetic crisis and let's say their blood sugar was 600. So it's really, really high at that moment. They don't need a low carbohydrate diet. They need insulin. They need a medication to lower that. And then over time, you know, obviously we would transition them. Ideally we would transition them to a low carbohydrate diet. Well, if somebody, you know, who is severely underweight, like when I was, you know, in treatment, I was severely underweight. I didn't necessarily need a low carbohydrate or high fat diet at the time. The number one priority was let's save your life. Let's get you calories. And, you know, however that looks, um, but my concern, and, you know, I actually had the opportunity to watch a, um, uh, was being, it was two dietitians were talking to Harvard medical students about the, the title was advancements in treatment in anorexia. And unfortunately there was no advancements. You know, they basically were talking, we two feed people, we give them the standard American diet. And the two dietitians basically said, you know, well, you know, these people don't really recover from eating disorders. They're going to deal with this their whole lives. And so while I validate, certainly there's a time to like to eat carbs and sugar. If you need that for weight restoration, I think you hit a critical point that what happens after that? You know, what if we talk to people who are severely underweight? So, you know, we need to get you to this point. But after that, we're going to transition, transition to make sure you have plenty of animal fats and plenty of proteins. Because we know, like you said, and in your research, those foods, some of those very highly processed foods or high sugar foods are actually can potentially cause, you know, damage on a neurochemical level in your brain. So I just love you to talk maybe a little bit more about like context. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's a great point. Context is really, really critical and really important. So in these cases where uh, with anorexia, for example, when someone is severely malnourished and needs to gain that weight, it's very important to, uh, to have carbohydrates. And I don't say don't have it. I, I think mainly the point was more about uh, increasing the fat, for example, because there's this idea of being on a low calorie, low fat, I don't wanna gain weight because uh, these patients are, are ill and they're thinking that they need to lose weight and they have a fear of weight gain. And so that part is, uh, it, it's a hard thing to treat, but I do think that that is important when it comes to uh, increasing fat and, and talking about um, the quality of food too. 
and I do, I, I do think that in these cases, um, we shouldn't be focusing so much on um, you have to be on this low carb approach or, you know, you have to be on a diet because I don't think in those cases, it's a good idea. In those cases, it's more important for them to, to, to get that weight gain, mm -hmm. um, to be in a healthier range. But what I worry about is that once they're in that weight range, they're not really getting the right nutrients and they're still malnourished. And so I see people who are malnourished, who are overweight or have obesity. And I also see people who are malnourished with anorexia. So to me, they're all malnourished and all, all of the treatment should be uh, focused nutritionally, at least that part of the treatment should be focused on restoring that um, malnourished state to a nourished state. Yeah, Dr. Sethi, uh, one thing you kind of mentioned and you touched on a bit there too is just uh, like what makes up the approach. And I'm, I am interested in that because I see it like as possibly like two ways to look at it. And one is like, well, what are you putting in that could potentially be causing a negative mental feedback loop that could possibly drive you back into the same problem you were before versus putting something else in there that can give, put you in a positive feedback loop so that when you are having like a point of struggle, perhaps you're more likely to make a rational decision or make the right decision. Is that kind of something that you've been exploring with some of your stuff too, is like, what role do the specific types of foods play in preventing the mental state that may drive a specific eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. We, we are looking at that. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about that and why certain dietary patterns can be helpful with even the behavior. Um, and there's some new research actually that came out that I can go into as well. But before I do that, I, I thought I should mention um, a study that is very often cited uh, in the eating disorder community. And it's a study experiment from the 1940s that was led by Ansel Keys. And it's called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And that investigation was designed to determine both physiological and psychological effects of starvation, of, of severe and prolonged dietary restriction. So the objective of the study was to first uh, see what happens when you starve humans um, under famine conditions. And second, to use those results produced to actually guide the allied relief assistance to victims of famine in Europe and Asia at the end of World War II. And one of the main observations in that study was that the physical effects of the induced semi-starvation uh, during the study really, really mirrored the experience of people with a range of eating disorders, such as anorexia and bulimia. So the results of that study, basically it was thought that these profound social and psychological effects of these conditions may result from undernutrition. So our brain changes uh, both structurally and because of the undernutrition. So the recovery then depends on that physical renourishment, but there wasn't an emphasis on the quality of the food. Um, and so what I think that I would add is that even weight restored people or people with obesity, like I mentioned, are malnourished and getting to that better state and quality uh, is important and avoidance of foods that we know are detrimental uh, to the health of the brain 
um, is important and should be emphasized too. So maybe if we did that, our rates of mental illness and eating disorders would decrease. Um, because again, I do think that all foods are not traded equally. And the rates of eating disorders, obesity, binge eating, and addictive-like eating have increased um, along the same curve as ultra-processed foods in the modern food environment. So there's something about that that I think we do need to pay attention to. And the research that's been done uh, in the eating disorder community between different diets and quality of those diets hasn't really been done yet. Um, it's been focused on, like I was saying, the low calorie and restriction and low fat. So the idea of dietary restriction causing eating disorder symptoms is the predominant view in theory. But I think we do need more research in this area to fundamentally include in our disease models, both the neurobiological and metabolic factors. Um, so, so with that, um, you know, we did research in eating disorders, very, very preliminary with the case series that you mentioned on some patients with severe obesity and an eating disorder um, that achieved binge abstinence in addition to weight loss while on a ketogenic diet. And that idea, you know, contrasts obviously with the dietary restriction hypothesis, um, which you can imagine may have created some questions in the community as well. Um, but in my view, we should better understand why these patients were successful and perhaps the dietary restriction hypothesis may be based on data that is not as robust and we should consider the quality of the food, the malnutrition state and those potential mechanisms that are involved. Um, so previous studies were done uh, with low calorie, low fat, like I mentioned, and that led to the feeling of restriction and then binge eating. Um, and these individuals in the case series also improved in other mental health measures like mood and quality of life. We, we did a pilot randomized control trial study as well with an FDA approved obesity drug, um, which is a combination of fentramine and topiramate. And that helped curb both the binge and purge episodes in those with binge eating disorder and bulimia. Um, we were careful not to actually give that to patients with anorexia because we were worried that because it's a weight loss drug, we didn't want to decrease um, the weight further. But in those folks that had binge eating disorder, bulimia, um, they didn't actually have a change from the normal weight BMI to an underweight. So that was one thing we were worried about, but we did not see that. So that's actually really great uh, for, for the patients. So more research needs to be done, but from this study we conducted, it was pretty clear to us that the medication had a significant effect on thoughts of food, on cravings and urges to binge. And patients would say that they felt that like they had their life back. They could think of other things aside from food. Um, and you know, now we're looking at various diets and their effects on binge eating and purging in particular in this kind of larger cohort in the UK. So I'll have to update you guys on that when the data comes out for that. Um, but I'm also currently studying the ketogenic diet in those with bipolar illness and schizophrenia um, to look at the outcomes for, for that population. Yeah, Dr. Sethi, if you don't mind, I have your case study here. I'm just going to read for our audience. Um, so this was the case study with the ketogenic diet and um, the three individuals with binge eating disorder. So just some of the conclusions. So all patients tolerated the ketogenic diet. None reported any major adverse effects. 
Patients reported significant reductions in binge eating episodes and food addiction symptoms. Additionally, the patients lost between 10 to 24% of their body weight, noting all these patients were obese, so they did need to lose weight. And like you said, I think one of the, uh, another amazing things is all the patients reported substantial improvements in mood symptoms. So I, having, you know, when I, when I became weight restored, you know, I had an eating disorder when I was 12, I was told I would have anxiety, racing thoughts around food and struggle my entire life. And that was relatively accurate. You know, I, I was just had to become kind of a, a high functioning uh, person with anxiety and eating disorder. And when I changed, when I shifted my diet to a low carb animal based diet, like within weeks, I found significant improvements in my symptoms. And so it's amazing. Obviously, you know, it's a in a one, but the more people that I've talked to that follow this way of eating that have um, reduced their carbohydrates, increased animal protein and saturated fat, um, I'm, I'm hearing more and more and more stories. Um, and it seems like perhaps this was a, you know, something's happening, you know, and obviously, like you said, you're, you're seeing this, um, you know, there's shifts in the brain, which I think potentially can help people, like you said, with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Are you able to talk a little bit more about um, kind of what's going on in the brain? Like, like when we, when we reduce these ultra processed foods and we're increasing fat, increasing protein. Yeah, of course. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think about is a lot, a lot of the standard American diet, the, you know, ultra processed foods that we're exposed to, there's an addictive component to the food that we're eating. And um, there are several mechanisms in the brain um, that are occurring and some which act directly on the brain and some that are kind of indirect through hormones. And the ultra processed food and sugar, it, it down regulates our dopamine receptors and it makes us eat more compulsively. So much like the addictive drugs that we uh, you know, know are highly addictive, right? Like alcohol or cocaine, highly processed foods also trigger those dopamine reward pathways and they invoke addictive like behaviors. And we're seeing that um, in the research, it's been well-documented that it causes um, symptoms of addiction, like intense cravings, feelings of withdrawal when cutting down on the pro ultra processed food, um, continuing to eat these things, despite knowing that there's adverse consequences to it. Um, we also know that the hormones are changing, the insulin, the leptin, the ghrelin, um, so the, uh, you know, fat storage hormone, um, the hormone that tells us we're hungry and the hormone that tells us we're full and they modify, they actually act, um, their pathways in which they act in the brain and they modify these drug reward pathways. And, um, if our hunger hormones go awry, it can actually increase that reactivity of the dopamine system as well. So that does happen when we consume excess carbohydrates, we get these rapid shifts in blood glucose and insulin levels that we weren't really, our bodies weren't really meant to have these rapid shifts. And our body's always trying to get us back into this homeostatic uh, you know, state. And so once it does that, um, it, it's shifting. And so it's kind of similar to how, how addictive drugs have such a change or rapid shift in levels. And so that that's kind of where you know, the argument or the theory behind, well, this is also addictive and you know, sugar is an addictive substance and it's not just something we say, it's a straightforward neurochemical basis in the brain, just like any other drug. And one of the things with the low carb, high fat diet or the ketogenic diet 
is that it does stabilize that blood sugar. It normalizes the insulin level. So you're avoiding those hormonal shifts. It's like you're bypassing that. So it's not happening, right? And so that affects the dopamine reward system in the brain. So with a ketogenic diet, you're also, you know, not only are you dampening that uh, reactivity, you're also increasing expression of uh, what we call BDNF, which is the, you know, miracle grow. Uh, I've talked about miracle grow in the brain. Like it's interesting because that's also linked to decreased food intake as well. So we don't need as much food, uh, you know, when we have the BDNF expression and we don't need, so diets high in sugar and refined carbohydrates, they've really been shown to decrease that BDNF expression. And when, when that changes, you know, if we're having a lot of excess carbohydrates and sugar, we actually end up, you know, getting this reactive hypoglycemia because the insulin goes up and then it basically takes the blood sugar, uh, you know, out and it ends up that someone starts feeling hungrier. And I see that clinically, I see patients feel like they want to binge later in the day because they had these carbohydrates. And so there's a lot of strategies for even timing of meals that make a difference for, for, for people. Um, and with ketosis, dampening down that reward signaling and excitatory activity um, is one intervention amongst many other ways or mechanisms as to why we think it works. But even with addiction treatment, we use GABA inhibition um, as a mechanism for the drugs that we use. We want to reduce, um, you know, we increase GABA, so we're inhibiting. And so it decreases that excitatory activity in the brain. So indirectly, the ketogenic diet may be doing something similar in altering the role um, or altering the neurotransmission in the brain. So other mechanisms that you know we think uh, are helping is to prevent those unnatural spikes, the blood glucose spikes, and that cuts out that problematic cascade. Um, there's also protein in a ketogenic diet. So ketogenic diet is moderate protein. It's not high protein as it's sometimes in the media portrayed. And it's, it's, it's protein has been shown to dampen that reward response to process foods and reduce ghrelin, which is our hunger hormone. And so, th so this are, these are some of the mechanisms. Um, there are actually a lot more, but these are definitely um, some of the bigger uh, ones as it relates to the ultra processed food being cut out. Um, I can go on. There's more. <laughs> you like me to talk about it? it it's really interesting stuff, Dr. Sethi. And I think like even outside of like the disordered eating kind of like angle with this, it's, there's a lot of kind of crossover just in general. It may just not have as many negative upfront consequences that we see. I, I think of my own specific story of when I went to a lower carbohydrate, you know, ketogenic for some time, like diet, one of the first things I noticed was you know, I went off this roller coaster of energy levels from the day where I felt like if I woke up in the morning and did a big workout, I could easily get through that workout. But then after that, it was just playing a, a game of back and forth between my energy levels, whether it would be like, okay, I need a snack in order to kind of boost myself back up. So I have the energy to teach this next class. You know, I was a teacher at the time. So I was like, you know, I was dealing with a lot of different variables, but um, once I went down to that lower carb 
angle it was just like more of a steady like flat line throughout the course of the day i never felt like i was necessarily shot out of a cannon but i also never felt like i needed to lay down and take a nap immediately or anything like that and when it really got interesting my mind is just like you know observing students too because it wasn't you know it was much more common than i would like to admit that i have a student you'd come in who had like you know pop tart and orange juice for for breakfast and then by 10 a.m they're at the vending machine getting a you know a a caffeinated soda uh, with a boatload of sugar in it. And then, you know, by lunchtime, they're hungry again, because they had just mainlined essentially straight sugar all morning long. And, and they're just, there's like playing that same game I was kind of doing, I just had the infrastructure from a work output standpoint with all the training I did that it wasn't creating any type of like, you know, like, weight issues or like overconsumption issues, because, uh, you know, I was doing the work to supplement it, but it certainly wasn't in my best interest to continue down that path just like it wasn't for any of those students to keep doing that. And I just wonder if like some of the stuff you're looking into just gets even more exasperated because now we're dealing with a, a community of people who are having an extra bit of struggle to get past some of these, uh, some of these disorders that uh, are, are still negatively impacting people without them, but maybe just not as apparently. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that you know, you figured that out for yourself and you were able to achieve, you know, a better outcome. Um, it reminds me actually of a, a patient I had um, who had bipolar illness and severe obesity, sleep apnea, was on a CPAP, um, you know, nightly and also had the binge eating disorder. Uh, and when I first saw, um, you know, this patient, he was binge eating daily, not sleeping well, had to take that nap in the middle of the day, really low energy. Uh, mood was low. He tried everything running. He used to be a, a triathlete actually. Um, and, you know, we developed a plan for him. We treated his insulin resistance, um, the eating behaviors kind of more the comprehensive approach. He lost hundred pounds. He went, he went on the ketogenic diet. He came off his blood pressure meds, reduced dosages for uh, a lot of his uh, conditions and including some of the psychiatric meds as well. He stopped binge eating slept like seven, eight hours per night, um, mood improved, and he maintained that weight loss for three years. And he had said to me that he hadn't been that happy in years that he finally felt comfortable enough to even go outside and run again. Um, so I, you know, I think that there's a, you know, even with for binge eating in particular, e even just starting off the day with some protein and fat rather than that you know, orange juice and pop tart that you mentioned, it makes a huge difference, um, in, in feeling satiated and not necessarily going for, um, the, those excess carbohydrates later. The dietitian's dilemma podcast series is made possible by our friends at S fuels. S fuels is both Michelle and my workout recovery and lifestyle product of choice. They don't leave our carb-craving friends hanging, but make sure they stay true to their roots by boasting a wide range of low-carbohydrate products to help anyone make low-carb living and performance much easier. Personally, I like to lean on their S-Fuels Life Mix and Revive in my morning coffee just to give me a little bit of extra fat fuel and protein to start the day. Their Life Bars I'll turn to when I need a protein-packed snack on those higher-energy demanding days. Their S Fuels Train product when I need a bit of extra fat for a long workout, and their Race Plus to help keep liver and muscle glycogen topped off on my harder, longer efforts. You can check out their full lineup at sfuelsgolonger.com. That is 
S-F-U-E-L-S-G-O-L-O-N-G-E-R.com and enter promo code ZACHB5, that is all caps, Z-A-C-H-B, the number five, for 5% off your next order. Thanks for tuning in, and now back to the show. So there's uh, so there's two things that um, were often kind of brought to my attention when we when we talk about eating disorders, um, and like one thing people say is like, well, if asking somebody, you know, even if they're obese or dealing with binge eating disorder, asking somebody to follow a ketogenic or a low carb diet is restrictive. It's restrictive to cut out sugar. It's restrictive to cut out processed foods. So I love your thoughts and feedback on that. And um, the second thing is, you know, having, I, I would love to know, um, you know, having practiced in the hospital for such a long time, like we have, well, I, well, that's it. So we have so much good data on the benefits of a ketogenic or low carbohydrate diet. Why do you think we're still continuing to prescribe standard American high carb, low fat diet? So I'll let you run with those two questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I think for the, the restriction, like causing the restriction feeling I think is really important. And so I don't think that there's a one size fits all for everyone. And some, some people uh, do feel restricted and there is the psychological piece. I think that has to be addressed that, that always has to be addressed usually. And I think ketogenic diets can be helpful for some who don't necessarily have that feeling of restriction. So I always ask, um, what triggers them and really try to understand uh, where things are coming from uh, because it does depend on the person and how ready they may, might be to make adjustments in food can vary depend, depending on the individual. Um, I do think that ketogenic diets uh, have a uniqueness to them in the way that mechanistically how it acts in the brain and what, and what it does. Um, so, so that research still needs to be done further, especially in the eating disorder world. So I think to answer your question about that, that's, uh, that's something that hopefully we'll see over time that I'm optimistic that things will start changing, but it does take time and someone has to do the research for that to, to get there. Um, Cause you know, evidence-based medicine is, is, is always the golden, you know, that's what we try to achieve before we make recommendations. Uh, but there is really good data now coming from different angles, like with epilepsy, there's, you know, there's no um, dispute there that the ketogenic diet is helpful for patients with epilepsy. I think with obesity and insulin resistance, that's, you know, it's pretty clear also. Um, with mental health, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's something that's newer. Um, with neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's or um, autism, there that there is more data there too, but with mental health, there isn't. And so that's something that we need to further pursue. And I'm, I hope that we can be part of that amongst, you know, a lot of other colleagues um, around the globe that are working on this. So I do remain optimistic that, that things will change over time. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's a great message. I think it's a, it's a great topic that we should be discussing and thinking about and um, learning more about. Um, the brain is a highly metabolic organ and you need to feed it the right quality fuel. So like, why are we not talking more about nutrition? Why are we not <laughs> prescribing it more? And I think overall in, in medicine, 
nutrition isn't a, a huge focus, but I do see that things are changing. Nutrition education is now becoming part of medical education, which it wasn't before. It wasn't in, uh, you know, our board exams, for example, now it's starting to like obesity as well. And nutrition is starting to be a part of that. So things are changing. And, you know, once you put it in there, then, then everyone has to learn it, right. To pass the test. So in some ways that's a good thing. Uh, but I think the training uh, has to, has to change. And that's, you know, I'm optimistic that it, that it would be changing over time. Yeah. You know, another interesting point to that, that I think it's just a kind of a funny one at this point in time, given our current food environment is the whole restrictive thing. And because it's such an individual part. And at the end of the day, we're all going to have to restrict. The question is, where are you going to restrict? So, you know, you walk into a grocery store in our modern food environment, if you want to follow the everything in moderation approach, that's fine, but you are going to restrict the amount of any single thing you eat because if you just, you know, if you go over that very moderate amount in any one of those things or multiple of those things, you're going to be over consuming and you're going to be, you know, in just as bad of a place as someone else versus, you know, someone following a ketogenic diet. Well, they're going to restrict too. They're just going to restrict the amount of carbohydrates they eat almost down to none. Uh, so it's kind of like a pick your restriction category, in my opinion. And then it comes down to, well, how do you as a, per, as a person behave and what is going to help you kind of sustainably stick to whatever it is you're doing? So if you're someone like myself who prefers salty, savory foods over sweet foods, just generally speaking, if you tell me to go on a low fat diet, that's going to feel overly restricting because now I'm avoiding the foods I prefer the most from just a preference standpoint in exchange for a, like an abundance of the ones that I don't not like them, but I just don't crave them as much versus someone who's opposite of me, who maybe has a really, a real sweet tooth and isn't all that into like salty, savory stuff as much for them. If they went on a strict ketogenic diet, you know, they may feel overly restricted because now they're giving up almost all of those sweet options that they would have had in the past in exchange for something that, you know, they can tolerate, but maybe not sustainably long-term when they're in the modern food environment and they have access to some of these foods that they're technically supposed to be avoiding. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the traditional SAD diet is, is clearly not the optimal nutrition plan for our brain health, right? And there's an excess amount of carbohydrates and sugar. I think most people know that now. And our bodies and our brains are just not meant to process that. So we're seeing more chronic disease. We're seeing more mental illness. We're seeing more eating disorders and addictive like eating so there's something about the, our food environment that's contributing to worse outcomes in eating behaviors or ca even causing unhealthy eating behaviors due to hormonal and physiological reasons. So the restriction, I think what's interesting is that typical binge foods um, listed in the literature are almost entirely ultra processed foods, high in sugar. It's not like the steak. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a recent retrospective um, observational study of 74 patients and it showed that regardless of the type of eating disorder, those patients who engaged in binge eating, they binged on ultra processed foods 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty interesting, uh, you know, factoid and observation that that the the food um, environment that we have, um, it's not a moderate food environment. So wow. there is restriction that will be there to improve health and 
and what kind of restriction are we okay with? Um, what I think the ketogenic diet has that um, is beneficial or helpful for some is that a lot of folks don't necessarily feel hungry because they're having that higher fat. Um, and that makes a difference. Um, I think with the low fat, low calorie diet, um, most of the time they, they do feel restricted because they're still hungry. And so one of the things that I do ask when I have a patient on a ketogenic diet is, are you hungry? Do you feel hungry? And if they tell me that they're not hungry, then I know they're probably in ketosis, you know? <laughs> and if they say they are, then, then we'll have to troubleshoot and see. So I, I think that does make a difference. Yeah. And I think the concept of restriction, it's really strange. And I mean, I love that you pointed out that when people are binging, like the research was saying, it's like always on these ultra processed foods. So we have the message from so many medical professionals and traditional dietitians that well, all foods can fit. You can't restrict, um, you know, people with eating disorders from cookies or donuts or these ultra processed foods. And I can tell you like from personal experience, there is nothing more restrictive than being in the chains of an eating disorder. There's nothing more restrictive in my opinion than, um, you know, in 2017, things got pretty bad for me personally. And it, I mean, if you had said, Michelle, if we cut off your right arm, things will be better. I would have been taken, you know, and most people that I know that have struggled with eating disorders, you know, I lost a friend, um, at the age of 20 to an eating disorder that I think we have to start looking at that definition of restrictive. I mean, what you get back, you know, the quality of life you can have back, like you shared, like your patients are saying, I'm alive again. I can function again. Like for me personally, I don't think about food. I'm not anxious. I can, you know, I can run. I mean, in 2019, I was able to run it all. I was hungry all the time. My health was a mess. So I think we have to like dig a little deeper. And I think we have to um, start looking at who benefits from this narrative that all foods can fit because it's not in my experience. It's not the patient. There's, there's sick, anxious messes. It's the ultra processed food companies and potentially maybe some of the pharmaceuticals. Um, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> your friend. Yeah. It, it's, a, right. it's a serious illness and um, we should be looking at these things. Um, if you'd like me to go more into mechanisms, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, do it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I thought I, I should also mention is that the brain has this delicate balance of neurotransmitters, right, and chemical messengers. And the the problem with sugar and processed food is, besides the addictive uh, piece that I described earlier, and the reward response, it also uh, the the other thing that does happen is that the neurotransmitter levels change. And it's not the optimal uh, level for good communication. Um, so you need that right, you need the right kind of raw ingredients for metabolic reactions to occur in the brain. Um, and like one third of our genome encodes for these enzymes for metabolic uh, processes. And even with, for example, with eating disorder uh, anorexia, um, there was a study that came out, I think it was 2019, and looking at, um, there's a genetic relationship with anorexia and other mental illnesses as well, and a relationship with metabolic dysfunction. So I think that's really interesting and, and we need to look into that further and, and take that into our disease models. So you need that proper speed of transmission for signals as, as well. Your brain is composed of these electrical cells. It's a complicated web of signaling molecules. Um, 
you need fat to develop and function properly. So this whole idea of being afraid of fat is just really detrimental, I think, to, to health. And you need you need fat in your diet, you need omega-3s, you, you need it to be working properly. So if you have more sugar and ultra-processed foods, the problem is your body can't really absorb those nutrients that you're having, even if you're eating those nutrients anyways from food, your body's actually not absorbing them, especially if you're also having that, uh, you know, the sugar and the ultra processed food along with it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of folks don't realize that and they feel like, okay, I'm getting the nutrition because I'm eating it, but it's really about, are you absorbing it? Um, and most people with metabolic dysfunction have nutritional deficiencies and they're malnourished. So nutrition and diet is really critical. And there's growing evidence that you can build a more resilient brain through lens of inflammation and neuroplasticity. So that BDNF that I talked about before, it promotes the growth, the recovery, the neuron development, the function and the survival. So that's why I say it's not just changing brain chemistry, it's changing brain structure and the function too. Um, and so that's why I think with mental illness, it's very exciting for us to do more work in this area because we know that mental illness is associated with increased inflammation, like depression, bipolar illness, and psychosis. And research is showing us also that there's an energy deficit in these brain illnesses. So um, the mitochondria, the energy powerhouse of our cells are not functioning optimally and they're causing changes in brain signaling. So if, if something like a ketogenic diet or a low carb, high fat diet is shifting that metabolism, utilizing those fatty acids, burning fat and ketones as a primary energy source rather than the glucose, um, you know, it's, it's helping because it's anti-inflammatory, it's reducing oxidative stress. It actually even increases the mitochondrial mass in the brain. Um, and it reduces those reactive oxygen species as well that, you know, we, we don't want uh, too much of, right? So it provides an alternative pathway to create energy that may bypass the underlying dysfunction in the brain. Um, and in fact, there's also inflammatory immune cells like microglia that play an important role in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and depression um, that actually cause the mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, we think, and contribute to that GABA glutamate imbalance, so that excitatory inhibitory uh, balance. And so ketogenic diets can actually switch the microglia from a pro-inflammatory to their anti-inflammatory state, which is like a neuroprotective state. So I just thought I'd mention that because I do think that, that that's a kind of an interesting, uh, you know, mechanism as well, aside from the addiction that I was describing earlier. And that's fascinating. I mean, I am, I'm fascinated by it, by the brain and specifically by mental health. And it's, it's almost makes, I'm, I'm encouraged, but it's also hard because having worked in, you know, two different psychiatric facilities, it almost makes you angry because what we're feeding psychiatric patients is pretty much the opposite of a ketogenic diet. You know, it's a very high carbohydrate, actually in the facility I worked in, the average daily carbohydrate intake for our psychiatric patients is 330 grams with 42 teaspoons of sugar. Um, and so it's just like, it's so interesting that the narrative is like, we can't restrict, we have to give you all these things. But then the, the science and the data is saying like, actually, if we do do a low carb, high fat diet, you know, we are seeing these, these specific, very powerful shifts in the brain, which could actually potentially help maybe resolve some of these debilitating mental illnesses. So 
Thank you for sharing all that. Uh, this is super cool. Yeah, it's it's you know it's an older uh, it's a theory the dietary restriction right and and so this is kind of a newer um, more upcoming I guess latest data and in fact it, JAMA Psychiatry I think it was this week there was a recent cross sectional functional imaging study um, done in those with various eating disorder pathology and it showed brain salience response so like salience is the you know collection of networks in the brain and figuring out regions uh, where, where uh, basically it's the brain is, um, their key nodes and it selects like which stimuli is deserving of our attention basically. And they measure these things. And ultimately when they were looking at eating disorder pathology, there was an inverse relationship between BMI and binge eating. Um, mm-hmm. And essentially what it, what it was saying is that eating disorder behaviors actually change the brain reward processing itself. So the behaviors that we're engaging in is changing the reward processing and that can alter the food intake as well and the circuitry around food intake in the brain. And then because of that, it actually reinforces the eating disorder behavior. So theoretically, if we think about a ketogenic diet and how it dampens down that reward uh, response and reactivity I was mentioning earlier, then it would not be reinforcing that individual's eating disorder behavior. So that's a hypothesis, but (laughs) I'm gonna leave you with that. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Sethi, it's been amazing to have you on the podcast and kind of share some of your insights and you know, add one more uh, episode to the Dietitian's Dilemma uh, series of, of episodes. So uh, um, if you have anything else you want to chat about, we're more than open to hearing what you have. But if not, if you want to share with our listeners where they can find you, if you are putting stuff out on social media or websites and things like that, I'd be happy to put that in the show notes as well. Hey, Doug, I'm going to ask one quick question. Oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I so should have started with Michelle. Do you have any no, other questions? Gonna, <laughs> the last thing, because I think um, this is so incredibly much information, and I hope people who are really interested, like, y'all might have to listen to this podcast twice. Like, there's just a lot of good stuff, and I know we got a little science-y, but it's, it's all really important. But kind of to wrap it up, I always think it's really important, especially with something this intense, to Dr. Sethi, like, if someone who's listening to this is like, oh, my God, I... I want to start a ketogenic diet or, you know, maybe this can help my binge eating or I've been dealing with bulimia for 30 years. Maybe this can help me. Like, what do they do? Like, where do they, how do you start? Like, where would you point somebody to just to get started? Yeah. And that's a really tricky question because this this is not like standard of care. And we certainly don't want an eating disorder to get worse. Um, and, you know, we still need the data out there. We have the case series, but that's a case series. That's not a trial. That's not, um, you know, gold standard for evidence-based care. Um, so I would caution that if there, you know, if there are metabolic issues as well as, uh, you know, a concern for, you know, obviously treating the eating disorder, I think it'd be good to maybe find like a metabolic psychiatrist. There are a few of us in the country. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I hope to eventually have a little more information on all of that in the future. Um, so metabolicpsychiatry.com is a website that we have created, um, and we hope to kind of make it a, a free tool for the public, for patients, for families, uh, and it, that's for all mental illness, not just eating disorders. 
but it's the approach essentially. Uh, and that might be a place to start. And I'd, I'd, I hope to have uh, providers listed on that website in the future. So we'll have to stay tuned for that. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult question. It's a great question you're asking, but it's a difficult one to, to even try to get that kind of, because with an eating disorder world, you're not, you're not gonna get the dietary instruction. That's, uh, so you might have to combine that with uh, maybe someone who specializes in obesity medicine, for example, because I'm, I really just kind of combined <laughs> my, uh, you know, expertise in obesity medicine, as well as psychiatry and, and came to this conclusion that metabolic psychiatry makes sense. Um, I know that you uh, had maybe asked before about health at every size. So I thought maybe I should comment on that, especially because your listeners may uh, you know, also be wondering about health at every size movement. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about that. And, you know, ultimately the medical community is recognizing that the, you know, excess fat or excess adipose tissue is a cause of metabolic syndrome and other diseases. Uh, but I think the health at every size community recognizes that the excess weight is associated with metabolic syndrome and other diseases. So there's there's a difference in how it's viewed. So I come from the perspective of an obesity medicine physician. So I just, you know, where we view obesity as a chronic disease. So I do wanna put that disclaimer out there. Um, the IRS considers it, not that that means anything, but the WHO <laughs> and AMA also do. Uh, but I think the benefits of thinking about it as a disease has led to a decrease in stigma. It's allowed for, allocation of resources to both study and prevent it and increase training programs for treatment. So, you know, if, if there's a listener out there that doesn't believe obesity is a chronic disease, then you might take the perspective of um, health at every size and health at every size started historically as an advocacy movement um, with great intentions. I think it focuses on the concern of the individual to support health behaviors for people of all sizes without using weight as a mediator. But there are concerns and fears of, you know, weight stigma, contribution to food and body preoccupation, the reduction of self-esteem, eating disorder development, and really a belief that weight loss approaches are ultimately ineffective at producing thinner and healthier bodies. So that's the, you know, that's the perspective of the health at every size movement. From my perspective, I share the concern that weight isn't the only factor of health. Uh, but when evaluating someone with, say, severe obesity or even uh, obesity, we know majority of the time there's other associated and direct metabolic abnormalities due to the weight that comes up and treating the metabolic dysfunction, even without obesity, even overweight or normal weight. I see that too. Um, even with anorexia, I see that too. So um, I, can't, I can't ignore it. Um, so that comes from my, you know, I don't want to be doing more harm. Um, and I want to be doing good, right, for my patients. I don't want to turn a blind eye. So to, for me, I feel like that would be bad medicine. And so food is medicine, is also movement, and that can be just as powerful as a drug or surgery. And some of the criticism behind the health at every size movement is that it's based on small studies, there's limited values measured, and it ignores the health benefits of some of that modest weight loss, that 5 to 10%, and kind of ignoring the environment. So you know, if 
Ediator specialists and obesity medicine specialists, they have a common goal, but they have a different opinion on the approach. Since I treat both conditions, I take an integrated approach that that's best tailored to that individual. So if there are, you know, providers um, in, in the area that, uh, that will approach it that way, I think you'll have, I think the, your listeners will have a better um, outcome um, with what they're looking for if this is the approach they want to take. So I, I thought I'd explain that because there's, there's a lot of history to it. And um, I know that there's a lot of emotions that get involved also in, in, in these topics. And I wanted to make sure I covered that thoroughly um, to explain the difference between the two communities and kind of bridging, I think, these two communities and focusing on um, kind of a common goal. And if you need multiple providers to reach that common goal, an eating disorder professional who might be more open to um, also treating the metabolic dysfunction with someone else that might, might be the way to do it or cool. find a metabolic psychiatrist. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I share your sentiments and all right. I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Zach. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, now I've got a question. So. <laughs> well, sure, <yeah. laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I was curious about that because I'm not super informed in like the origins of the health at every size movement my like kind of uninformed assumption was that the idea it was take the stigma off of the obesity or the weight component so that the motivation to still make positive health choices wouldn't get like a paralysis by analysis type of situation where someone was like, well, I got to lose 150 pounds. That's going to take me years. It's not worth it. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing versus it doesn't matter that I'm 150 pounds overweight. It's still beneficial for me to exercise and make good food choices. And then kind of the people who were putting that together more or less just assumed that there would be a reduction in obesity by a, as a secondary outcome, I guess, versus that being kind of historically the, the primary focus more or less. But it seems like at least from what I've seen recently that that secondary outcome has also sort of been thrown to the wayside in a sense where even if you don't see that that occur alongside the other positive decision makings, it's still kind of encouraged as being the right way to go. Am I kind of on the right base with that or? Yeah, I, I think you're getting to a really good point actually also because I mean, ultimately if that's a secondary outcome, that's great. But in reality, that's not necessarily happening mm -hmm. because if you ignore the food environment and, and you, you think that it, it's fine, um, we should keep eating what we're eating in moderation. Um, if someone already has pretty severe metabolic dysfunction or severe obesity, um, they're, they're not going to get a whole lot of improvement without having some kind of intervention um, that's more aggressive. Uh, so what I mean by that is just a nutritional intervention that has been shown to reduce, right? So it's uh, to, to improve health there. Um, I think there just needs to be more treatment. And so that, uh, unfortunately, I think with health at every size, you're not necessarily getting the five to 10% modest weight loss improvements. Uh, and I think that's, you're getting other improvements. I mean, I think there are other things that, you know, with exercise, you get a lot of health benefits too, um, which is great. But I think that, uh, you know, the weight, the weight is not something you can completely ignore because sometimes the fat that accumulates, um, which we call visceral fat or internal fat, 
actually leaks out proteins and cytokines that are inflammatory and that causes problems in other parts of the body. And if we can do things to reduce that, I think it's worth, uh, worth treating and worth, worth thinking about. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that Dr. Sethi and all the other information you brought today. Uh, I know you mentioned the website, uh, anywhere else you'd like us to link for the listeners. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm gonna have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. If you, if you don't want people following you around on social media, we totally get that. <laughs> but, uh, um, I, I have a Twitter account. I don't use it much, but it's a okay. Shivani MD, uh, <laughs> is my Twitter and, uh, metabolicpsychiatry.com. I think we have a Facebook group. Um, it's run on volunteers. So it's, a, uh, it's a work in progress, but, uh, we're trying to share, you know, information with the public that we think will be helpful for people. And, um, we will continue to do that. So if you want to, if your listeners want to join that, then we're happy to have, have them there. Excellent. Oh, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes and, and Michelle, where can folks find you? Yeah. So I am on Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. I've got my website, the dietitians dilemma.net. You can get the book or the ebook and we're going to have the audio book by the end of the summer. And I'm on Twitter at Michelle Hearn RD. I do not engage or argue on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to both of you for taking some time out of the day. And I'm looking forward to getting this episode up. Thanks, Zach. Thank you for having me both. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 